You are now entering Frida's world. Join us as we address various issues facing women of color in the workplace. We'll help you navigate your professional and personal life the Frida world. world it's Frida's world. What's it like? What's it like? Classy and ratchet at the same time. You clash it. Like you love church music, but you f*** with future. That's clash it. It's Frida's world. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Frida's world. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day. And as always, I hope you guys are having a wonderful, wonderful week so far. So today we have a very special guest by the name of Professor Tanya Kateri Hernandez. Professor Hernandez is an Archibald R. Murray Professor of Law at the Fordham University School of Law, my alma mater. And Professor Hernandez was actually my professor for two courses. So it's really an honor for me to be able to be on the show with her talking about her latest book, Multiracials and Civil Rights. But before we get into the meat of the show, I do want to share my highlight for this week. And my highlight for this week is actually my highlight for last week. I know last week we didn't have a, an episode. It was catch up week. But the highlight that I have is that I got a new job, guys. I got a new job. I will be starting my new um I don't know, my new place of it. I will be starting at my new place of employment on July 1st, which is in about a week and a half, really. And so I am very excited for this move. Um, very, very excited for what lies ahead. But I will say that I am having a little bit of separation anxiety because I actually did like my coworkers and I liked, you know, um, the, I guess the atmosphere in a sense at my, at my current job. Um, the people were nice. The, you know, my son loved it. It, it was, it was a good place, I think, to, to start in a sense. I've been there for several years, but the ambitious side of Rita, for those of you who know me well, I have a very ambitious side. Um, it was time to go to, you know, soar to new heights and to, um, really, I guess, find the route of prosperity. So, I am. So that's my highlight. My highlight is that I got a new job and it's a really big highlight. Um, like I said, I'm very excited about it. Very grateful for it. It would not have happened without Jesus because although I talked about spreading my wings and getting a new job, I was not as aggressive. <laughs> so this definitely was, in my mind, a miracle and an act of God. But that is my highlight of the week. So now we are on to the meat of the show. All right, everyone, I'm here with my very special guest, a former professor of mine from Fordham University School of Law, Professor Tanya Hernandez. Hello, Professor. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Um, so, you know, I've been, I've been seeing you on Instagram <laughs> and on LinkedIn, and I was like, what is my professor up to these days? And I see that you came out with this book, and you've been on this book tour going all over the world. And so I thought to myself, hmm, wouldn't it be great to have Professor Hernandez <laughs> on the show? So welcome again. And um, I guess for there's many people out there who might not know who you are. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and then we can go from there. Well, I am a law professor and I have been in law teaching for about 22 years. Uh, and I've been uh, for Fordham now about a decade or so. Uh, 
And my primary area of interest is in issues of social justice, race, and uh, gender discrimination. Uh, I look at those questions not only within the United States, but I like to think about these things comparatively. Uh, and so I look at, you know, how does employment discrimination operate in other jurisdictions, uh, how Afro-descendants treated, you know, throughout the African diaspora, uh, and these uh, matters uh, influence both sort of the conversations that I have with my students in the classroom with regards to civil rights law and what I do research and writing on. Okay. And I remember when I was here for it, um, um, I took your employment discrimination course and I took your wills, trust and estates course. <laughs> and that's how I fell in love with wills, trust and estates, although I did not get into that field, but it was such an enjoyable class. And I remember when I was signing up for just the class in general, people were like, oh my gosh, this class is, you know, this class is supposed to be so boring. It's wills, it's trust, it's estates. Like who wants to deal with that? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And it wasn't mandatory for us at the time, but I knew that it was going to be on the bar and at the time, I was thinking about elder law. So I was like, I, I want to take this course. And it was probably one of my most favorite courses here at Fordham uh, because you're just such a vibrant teacher. There. Well, people say to me, you know, how do you uh, explain the interest in wills and also the interest in social justice? I said, you know, for me, they're both fundamentally about people mm -hmm. right? uh, and having uh, personal relationships matter uh, and having people be treated with dignity and with equity. Uh, and those themes, you know, flow throughout anti-discrimination law and in trust in wills. Yes. Uh, and sometimes it's like, you know, it's easier to deal with issues of dead people than it is to deal with matters of race, and it gives me a little bit of a break. <laughs> but the one thing I will say, the scandals in the in the in the textbook, <laughs> I learned so much about celebrities <laughs> and their scandals. I was like, this is like it was like a, like a telenovela almost in the book. Family drama is family drama, yes. and it only becomes that much more salacious when there's money involved. Exactly. <laughs> so you have went on to write this book called The Multiracials and Civil Rights. That's correct. And I wanted to definitely get into that and to talk a lot about it because I feel like we are in this era where people are embracing their multicultural backgrounds. You have a lot of um, individuals who are, um, especially from the uh, Latinas, Latinos, who are now saying, I'm not just Latina, Latino, I'm Afro-Latina. And this has become, I mean, for me, at least, I've noticed it more within the last couple of years. You have all these celebrities now coming out and kind of like, you know, making a movement out of it. And so this um, idea of like the multicultural race is really like, you know, embedded now, I would say, within our um, the mainstream culture. And so when I saw the title of the book, I'm like, this is quite interesting uh, because there's always mixed reviews when people talk about, you know, what exactly is a multicultural? What does that even mean? And when we're talking about rights and discrimination, like how does that play? You know, like what does that look like? Um, so I definitely wanted to kind of talk about the book. And I guess um, what made you write this book? Well, you know, the book Multiracials and Civil Rights came out of a confusion I was having. Um, uh, and the confusion arose when I started to read uh, some articles, some news stories uh, from various authors where they would say, oh, you know, there's a growing uh, population of people in our society who are neither solely one race nor another. They're the children of an interracial uh, parentage. And so they have a, you know, they have no single race identity. They're, they, they're, they identify in a much more fluid manner. Mm -hmm. 
And I was aware of this growing population as well. Uh, but the here where I was confused was where the presumption was that being mixed race meant that anti-discrimination law wasn't good enough mm. for multiracials, for people who are mixed race or biracial identified, um, because their fluid identity meant that judges wouldn't understand them or how discrimination was occurring. And that, and moreover, that our civil rights laws that were created during a time of a very sort of binary black versus white historical framework, that those laws now really were too antiquated mm. to deal with this more fluid racial identity. Um, and I say the reason why that confused me, it's not a confusing argument, but what I found confusing about it is that as someone who came out of both, uh, I mean, I don't identify myself as multiracial, but within the parameters of how they identify it mm -hmm. or define it, you know, one parent is of one race, one parent is of another. That was definitely me. Um, and I'm not only multiracial, but also multicultural because my family's from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, and I'm born in the United States, mm -hmm. right? So there's this multiplicity of um, cultural uh, influences in the household as well. Uh, and yet, right? and yet, even with both that multiracial and that multicultural background, I never had experiences of discrimination that stem from being multiracial or multicultural. Mm -hmm. That is to say, when I experienced racial discrimination, it was always because someone found it problematic that I wasn't white. It yeah. didn't matter what fraction of non-white they thought I was or what variation or what language background. It was about being non-white as being problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I found that account that I described to you um, about how multiraciality is something so new that civil rights law can't handle it as confusing because it just didn't square with both with my personal experience and also with what I know to be anti-discrimination law and how capacious, sort of how flexible it is for dealing with anti-discrimination. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that put me onto a journey of sort of wanting to track down the source of these uh, stories yeah. for why there were some people who view anti-discrimination law as too old-fashioned to deal with a new world of mixed-race identity. Okay. Yeah, because when I was um, going through, um, you know, the excerpts that you had sent me, I was like, this is quite interesting. I can see how, you know, some people would actually even be offended to, to see that, you know, we have a group of individuals who are identifying themselves as multiracial, multicultural, who are almost calling for like a, a, a different standard, I guess, of, of law to be applied to them because they have, you know, different backgrounds. And when I was, I was explaining to you offline that, you know, one of the things that popped into my head is, you know, that the, again, that whole one drop system when it comes to, um, you know, if you have any any drop of African ancestry, you know, how society views you as being black. And so therefore, the discrimination you're going to get is I won't say it will be exactly the same as somebody who's, you know, much darker, but, you know, 
you're a person of color, you're going to experience some form of discrimination. Well, you know, the, the way I characterize it in the book is that when racial discrimination happens, it's a very crude experience. Mm-hmm. Right? There is nothing nuanced or sophisticated about it. I mean, that's why it's discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and it's about reducing someone's humanity down to an attribute. Uh, and so, you know, it's not sophisticated. Uh, and in many ways, the, you know, what's jarring about it is just how oversimplified a, another person or institution is trying to reduce you down to. Uh, and so some might say, well, that's just about the one drop rule happening. But, you know, there, there are many, but there are instances in the book where there are uh, individuals who are multiracial who are not of African ancestry whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a Filipina, a mixed race woman, um, a Japanese American mixed race woman, uh, a story in the book, and in, and some Latinos who have, don't identify as having any blackness in them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how accurate that is, but in any case, <laughs> so that's what they say. Uh, and yet their stories of discrimination are all about how they were treated differently and unfairly based not on merit, but based solely on the fact that they were non-white mm-hmm. in ways that were problematic, right? Um, and so that reduction down to your non-whiteness is more how we characterize what's going on mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of squarely fitting it within just uh, the, the notion about one-dropness. Yeah. Um, although certainly it has echoes of that. Well, I definitely think it's, it's, it's good that you know, you brought in the examples of Filipinas and, you know, Japanese because, uh, again... I feel like whenever we're really talking about discrimination, everybody, you know, they stop and they're like, oh, we must be talking about a black person or or Latino person. They don't really for some reason we don't I don't see too many, um, I guess, examples or stories about a Japanese woman who might be half white, half Japanese experiencing discrimination or what that even looks like even. Um, So I think it is important to that you discussed that there are these different individuals, mm-hmm. these different backgrounds of people that actually experience discrimination. And at the end of the day, it's the reduction of who they are. It's not necessarily anything more than that is the way that they're mm-hmm. treated because they happen to be of mixed race and they're, you know, um, w- women of color or men of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we had, um, before we had talked, um, we were talking about, uh, Afro-Latina and how that's, you know, become a thing now. I mean, at least for me, I think it's because the media has, is, you know, pushing it more so. And so now people are more aware of this movement. And so you identify yourself as Afro-Latina. And so I wanted to just ask, you know, at what did you always um, identify as Afro-Latina? And if so, you know, or if not, rather, I guess, when did you come to the realization or, or when did you decide to um, accept that? Um, well, for me, there was never a single moment where, like, sort of like, you know, I discovered mm-hmm. who I'm black. And then, um, instead, I was raised, uh, culturally with the, you know, the embrace of, um, our African heritage. Okay. Um, I think, though, it's because it also came from a source of pain, uh, for my mother. That is to mm-hmm. say, um, m- when my mother was born, she was the darker, 
a member of the family. It's mm-hmm. a very Caribbean uh, uh, typical story. Yes. Uh, all right, some of us are darker, some of us are lighter. Uh, and we all know who's who. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so she was made to understand who who she was uh, and how undesirable her blackness was from her skin color, from her hair texture. These were all problematic issues that the family had to suffer under. Mm-hmm. Huh? Um, and because of that very sort of painful experience that she had, um, I was fortunate in the sense that she came to terms with the ways in which rather than internalizing that negativity, she somehow was an incredible woman, had the strength of character to sort of like reject that. Um, she also, uh, you know, became an adult in the sixties at a time in which, you know, there's a, a, a black rights yes. movement going on. And so, um, with that sense of the African diaspora, I think she had a way to sort of nurture and bring love back to herself mm-hmm. um, that she didn't find within the family household. So given her background, um, you know, she was one of these parents in the 60s and the early 70s who was, you know, coloring the Hallmark ca- uh, um, car- cards for each birthday <laughs> to make sure our brown face was looking back at me um, and to nurture um, my love of blackness and my own self-identity as Afro-Latina. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting to me is that that's not a very typical story. Yeah. Uh, within uh, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, the larger Caribbean, uh, and throughout the African diaspora, there's much more of a sort of anti-Black sentiment yes. you know, that creeps in within families mm-hmm. in a very disturbing uh, and detrimental way right? you know, to people's psyches. But... The Afro-Latino identity movement that you're referring to, that mm-hmm. you're seeing in the United States, actually starts, sort of, as, as I see it, within Latin America. Okay. Mm-hmm. Latin America has had its own sort of coming to terms uh, with civil rights movement uh, and a growing embrace of um, blackness and black identity. Uh, and with that conversation going on in Latin America and with people, of course, you know, traveling back and forth, yes. um, there's more of that embrace within the United States as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah Cause I was, you know, I have, I have several friends, um, you know, some are Puerto Rican, some are Dominican. And it's always, you know, been that, you know, for a time, at least when they were younger, they did not identify as Afro-Latina. They did not want to, you know, accept themselves as black. In fact, some of them were, you know, my my complexion. And, you know, I'm, I'm a dark-skinned woman. And even with them being dark-skinned, it was it was almost taboo for them to even acknowledge that they were black, and so now I, f- I feel like I guess because of mm-hmm. you know, what, what you're speaking of the the, La- the Latin communities that I guess mm-hmm. are embracing it a little more is they're more comfortable now saying that they're Afro Latina. So we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, we're hearing a lot more of that phrase. Um, but I, I did want to, um, I guess, get your opinion on it. We had spoken about this as well, too, that there are individuals out there, African-Americans, who find that it's problematic for individuals to add labels to themselves. So this Afro-Latina thing, it's like, well, why why can't you just be black? You know, you're you look black. So why are you calling yourself Afro-Latino? Is it something are you trying to be special? Like, what is your opinion on that? Well, you know, I think that. Um, part of what we see, you know, when we hear these kinds of um, perspectives is the result of the deficit in our race 
education in the United States. Right? Mm. Oh, I should say really globally. Yeah. It's not just the United States. So that is to say, each of us grows up in our own communities with the idea of like blackness is only here, mm-hmm. right? You know, that it's a United States story. The slaves only came here. There were nowhere else. Um, and what that does is it uh, misinforms us and cuts us off from an understanding of the ways in which blackness, right, is much bigger, right, than just a U.S. story. Mm-hmm. And then in point of fact, the only about, they think it's documented like 3% of the slave trade was brought to the United States. If only 3% to the United States, where's everybody else? The vast majority, Latin America and the Caribbean, right? Um, There are many accounts that say that outside of Nigeria, Brazil is the location with the highest number of people of African descent, right? So the resistance to sort of Afro-Latina-ness as an identity, I think, is in part part of the dearth of our own race education where we think, well, you know, oh, well, if you're not embracing African-American identity, mm-hmm. you must be in denial because there's not a misunderstanding that blackness is bigger than the United States. Yeah. Um, and that blackness also has its ethnicity to it, right? There's a political blackness, which we all, you know, share. Yeah. But there's also a cultural aspect to blackness that varies from geographical location to geographical location, even within the United States. So meaning to be black in New Orleans is one thing. To be black in Alaska is another, yeah. right? And it doesn't make anything more or less black than the other. Um, there's this comedian who just had an HBO special, Amanda Seals. Yes, Amanda. Um, and, um, <laughs> we love I'm, Amanda. I'm, I'm, I'm insecure. <laughs> and one of my favorite lines, of the many favorite lines I have from her HBO uh, special, I be knowing, um, <laughs> is where she says, every black experience is a black experience unless it is anti-black, quote, end quote. I, re- I loved it so much and I, re- I like memorized it. I mean, I, and, and what I took from that is for her sort of acknowledging, and she is very proud to say how she has a master's in Afro Af- studies <laughs> from Columbia University, um, is that blackness as a cultural phenomena varies greatly, mm-hmm. right? We sound different across different places. We eat different foods. But if you eat jollof rice or you eat rice and peas, it doesn't make you any less black. Um, as a cultural matter. But politically, that's where we all have something to embrace. But saying Afro-Latina doesn't diminish your political blackness. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to kind of go back to the book a little bit with respect to, um, you know, there were parts in the book that talked about, again, you know, multiracials feeling they're facing discrimination that I guess is different from that of, you know, I guess, black people or this model racial, I think, mm-hmm. is what was characterized. Um, so what types of discriminations like would, I guess, somebody who's multicultural feel is like, how would how does that differ from, you know, what the mainstream thinks discrimination to be? That's right. Well, here I want to make sure I give have clarity. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's one. So the story about the story of discrimination. Mm-hmm. That is to say that commentators, what they are sort of interpreting and distilling from yeah. sort of experience, hearing about people who are multiracial going to court and filing mm-hmm. discrimination claims. And then there's the actual stories mm-hmm. of people, you know, going to court and what happens to them. So I've already described to you sort of 
what the story is yeah. about their claims, right? Oh, law's not good enough. Law needs to be revamped. We need something special mm-hmm. uh, uh, for multiracial identified people. The multiracial identified people, though, it's different. That is to say, they do come to court and say, and that, that's what unifies all the, the cases in the book. They do come to court and say, I am mixed race. That's my racial identity. Right. And mm-hmm. that is different, you know, from, you know, prior generations. You know, uh, June 12th is the anniversary of the Love and V. Virginia decision. Mm-hmm. Right. So that 52 years ago on June 12th, the Supreme Court finally says bans against interracial marriage. That is no longer constitutional. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and with that, then. Uh, legality to marrying whomever you want across race lines comes the birth of more mixed race children yeah. and mixed race families who are multiracial identified. So this is new. But when they then proceed from this is my racial identity and then move on to and this is what happens to me, their description of this is what happened to me is the same yeah. as any other story of racial discrimination. That is to say, I applied for a job. I apply for a rental apartment. I try to access this public accommodation, a restaurant, a hotel, etc. Right. So I mean, I try to access the public good and I was denied that public good, not based on merit, but based solely because of race, not because of how you identify, but because of race. Mm-hmm. That is a unifying factor across all the stories that is no distinctive from an anti-discrimination story back of 1942, as it is from a story now of 2019. Now, do you think that there will ever be any, I don't want to say merit to these claims, but do you think that there will ever be any further investigation with respect to whether or not there actually is some sort of difference? Because it seems like there, you know, these commentators feel like there is a difference so there needs to be laws. There needs to be reformation. And we're saying, no, <laughs> it all looks the same. But do you think that, especially with the growing, I guess, number of mixed race uh, you know, people, because I think I don't remember what the year, there's some prediction that by the year, I don't know, let's just say 2050 or whatever, America will be a mixed race nation. And that's that. Um, do you think that there will be any type of pressure or any political pressure or anything to, I guess, find some sort of merit to this particular claim? Well, I think there's two things going on. One, we would have to, to, to say that anti-discrimination law wasn't, um, didn't have enough capacity, right, to deal with the multiracial identified claim would mean that we'd have to see a whole change in what's going on, meaning a change where people are being excluded from a public good because of their mixedness, Mm. as opposed to uh, the particulars of their racial background. Right? Okay. That is, a, as of yet, it's not appearing in the cases, right? I'm not saying it might not, but this is not what we're saying. As of now, right? yeah. Um, the other thing, though, is that part of what is also being identified as discrimination that is particular to multiracial identified people isn't really discrimination. Uh, so let me be specific. Right? Um Part of what the commentators, not the people who are suffering exclusion and go to court, mm-hmm. but the people who talk about them. Right? Yeah. So part of what the commentators say is problematic is that the uh, judges um, often will reduce a claimant's racial identity down to 
a single race that they view as the pertinent race. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, someone will come in, they'll say, hello, judge, I'm mixed race, my mother was white, my father's black, I went to apply for an apartment, and they told me, they called me the N-word and told me I couldn't access this apartment. Mm -hmm. So... And then the judge says, and this is clearly against the law, you know, as a black person, the commentators view that move that the judge makes, meaning I will concede a lack of courtesy in describing the claimant in the same language that the claimant uses to describe themselves. So meaning a judge oversimplifies someone's personal racial identity Mm -hmm. down to a single race. I agree as a matter of courtesy, it would be preferable for a judge to reflect back exactly what you say to them as to, as to how, you, well, how you view yourself. Right? But that itself, that move the judge makes, is not discrimination. Right? The judge isn't excluding you from a public good. The judge doesn't have some important event turn on misdescribing you, if you will. Yeah. Right? In fact, the move that the judge makes is, every single time, a reflection of the very story that the claimant has told. What do I mean by that? I mean this. That after the claimant says, I'm mixed race, they say, and what had happened was, right, when they say, that, you know, what, does, <laughs> yeah. what happened to them, they then describe the way in which they were reduced down to non-whiteness or lumped together with lots of other people of a single race, typically black, but not always. Mm-hmm. Right? And that the judge, in doing the analysis, is responding to the significance of the non-whiteness that the claimant herself or himself has raised. Yeah. Meaning the judge is actually being quite responsive. Right? Uh, even if for the commentators who talk about it, they view that misdescription as discrimination. For them, in other words, any resistance to you being able to say, I'm mixed and I'm proud, right? that that itself is a form of discrimination mm. that anti-discrimination law should speak to. It is, in other words, a reduction of anti-discrimination law down to an individualistic, dignity-based kind of view of anti-discrimination as opposed to a social group sort of material inequality approach to understanding what is significant about discrimination. And I think that it's, it's interesting to like also just to talk a little bit more about, you know, what exactly, you know, what is like the prime definition of, of discrimination? Because in the line of work that I do, there's a lot of, you know, we get a lot of claims of discrimination. And a lot of times when you really investigate, you're like, oh, th- you mean you were harassed? This is harassment. Or, you know, it's something else. But there's no, there, there's no like, you know, there's no treatment really. Like they weren't demoted because of their race or they weren't terminated because of their race or they weren't denied something because of their race. But they might not like the way that they were spoken to or they don't like the way that things are going. And so sometimes I feel like for lack of a better word, discrimination tends to be what, you know, people, you know, they name it. They call it discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so I think that... um Maybe there needs to be more of an understanding as to what discrimination is in general. Well, I mean, we have two things that are problematic, right? One, we have 
few worker rights in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's problematic for everybody. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of this language that you hear from people, like, you know, this bad thing happened to me, typically in the workplace, because that's yeah. where you spend most of your time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and indeed, most of the, 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 the highest numbers of claims come out of the workplace context. Yeah. Right? Because in other places, like, you know, a restaurant excluded you, well, you go someplace else to eat. Uh, a landlord wouldn't give you access to an apartment, well, you go find some other place to live. Yeah. I'm not saying that that should be the way, but, but that's people how you often do it. use what you call the power of exit. Whereas in the workplace, it's hard to find another job. So you fight tooth and nail for that yep. job. Okay. So we have few worker rights. So people try to express and create some form of um, good treatment for themselves with whatever legal tools they have. And we have very few. Yeah. So they'll turn to anti-discrimination law. The other th- uh, sort of dynamic that's going on with what you're describing um, in your work is that discrimination law does encompass harassment, but only severe and pervasive forms of harassment. Mm-hmm. Because as you describe, if you haven't been, let's bring it back to the workplace, denied a promotion, den- uh, paid unequally, um, fired unmeritoriously, meaning if some significant work uh, uh, access hasn't been impaired, if it's just bad treatment, then the courts, our legal doctrine, will only treat the bad treatment, or excuse me, treat the bad treatment <laughs> uh, from a legal matter as discrimination if the harassment was so, and here I'm quoting, severe and pervasive that it altered the conditions of your work. Right. So mm. that is to say, not just a one-off comment, right? I mean, the one-off comment may be hurtful. Yeah. It may stay with you. And I'm not saying that's right. But for now, our legal doctrine doesn't allow for the one-off comment to be addressed. It says, no, this has got to be enduring, pervasive, severe, such that it makes the workplace an impossible place to, for you to mm-hmm. be. Right? And that's not right. Um, that's bad for all of us, though. Again, that's not particular to multiracial identified yeah. individuals. That's, you know impoverish legal rights for workers, impoverish understandings of harassment in the workplace. That's bad for all of us. Yeah. So in the book, um, you, or the book talks about um, the woman by the name of Jill and how she was in the workplace and she is, she identifies, I guess, as mixed race. Mm-hmm. Um, she's biracial. One of her parents are white. The other one is black. And how her boss, I guess, wrongfully presumed that she was a white Hispanic because, I guess, of her light skin. But it turns out that she actually is black and white. And apparently, because of his discovery, she was treated poorly in the workplace. And so I wanted to kind of talk about um, these particular instances, you know, and how they occur in the workplace and, you know, what, I guess, what, rec- like how, I guess how this starts off, what recourse does an individual have if they are in the workplace and they receive this type of discrimination? Well, um, the story of the young woman that you described was a, sort of a very successful one um, because she had, and, and actually, and many of the multiracial identified claimants have this 
so-called, if you want to call it a benefit, right? The benefit of the before and the after, right? Meaning mm-hmm. if they are, as they say, racially ambiguous looking enough, yes. right? I mean, that's know, the term now. <laughs> right? the, the term, like, you know, and though interestingly enough, the, the term racially ambiguous isn't just about multiracial people. I like, mean, you know, yeah, you could have just one grouping, uh, racial grouping of parents, but you just happen to look like, yeah. Right? And so, and because of that, people view you as being racially ambiguous because they're like, who are you? What, what are you? Mm-hmm. Right? The typical uh, question to people who yeah. don't put a box very easily. <laughs> uh, but uh, when the multiracial person sort of does happen to look racially ambiguous, because they don't always. You, know, you could be mixing to be dark-skinned, yep. natural hair, <laughs> and there's nothing ambiguous about it. Right? Uh, but if you do look as what others review, uh, understand to be racially ambiguous, there's the before when they thought you were mixed, but they didn't quite know what, and uh, it was okay. It was sort mm-hmm. of exotic and interesting or whatever, right? Then the after, when they figure it out. And so in, the, in this young woman, uh, uh, what happened to her was that, you know, she, after a year working there with no problem, getting good performance evaluations and what have you, some of the darker skinned family members show up to work, picking her up for lunch, <laughs> you know, giving her a ride home after work, what have you. And that's how the supervisor finds out that, oh, it's not just mixed. Part of the mix includes African American, mm-hmm. and for this particular supervisor, that was problematic, and that's where she's treated badly. Because she had that before and after sort of built into her story, mm-hmm. it was very easy for the judge to say that, oh, the merits of her claim, you know, uh, are quite strong. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, she has a very good resolution. She actually um, reaches an out of court settlement, uh, and that's typically the, the win mm-hmm. in the anti discrimination law. Uh, and is, you know, paid a fee and walks away into that good (laughs) world um, uh, with her out-of-court settlement payment. There was another story about a sergeant. Yes. And that one I thought was pretty interesting. I guess he also passed as white. I think... I think he was mostly white, but his he had like maybe a 19% or 18% Native American, something like that. And he was the sergeant. He was, I guess, being promoted in the ranks. Everybody loved him. It was great. And then he took an Ancestry.com test or whatever that revealed that he was, I think, 19%. Um, Native American, and I guess he was just so happy <laughs> to... Well, actually, um, it's, it's a little different. It's a little close. Di- it's okay. a little different. So he is uh, someone who's white-appearing mm-hmm. right? and understands himself to be white because his whole family always look white, and they always describe themselves yes. as white. And he's from the Midwest in Michigan. Like, there was no confusion. I, I, I wish we were on screen. Yeah, like, show you an internet link of his face. You would not, he's not racially ambiguous. In other words, I mean, you look at me and say, oh, he's a white man. Okay. okay. So everything about him is, is white. He has this family folklore okay. about some distant relative who is Native American. That's what it was, yes. And, so, so he's curious about it. So he does an Ancestry.com test after 10 years of working on the police force as a sergeant. Uh, and discovers that no, there's no Native American but there is about 18% sub-Saharan African. That's what it was. Yes. yes, yes. So he goes to the workplace and, you know, these are his co-workers and people he's been working with for like the last 10 years and describes to them, you know, oh, hey, isn't this kind of amusing? I thought it was going to be one thing. It turned out to be another. And then they start to harass him, calling him Kunta Kinte. Yeah, they called him Kunta. The slave name from the Roots Ugh. book and uh, movie series. Um and they start to exclude him from important work training mm-hmm. opportunities. Um, and eventually, you know, this, this racialized treatment of him continues until he is terminated. 
Yeah. Um, and so for him, this was not based on merit. It was based on now this new understanding of him as being non-white. Mm-hmm. I mean, he still looked the same, right? Um, and so what I find very helpful about that um, story of his is that it helps sort of underscore the ways in which this is not just about a, a dynamic that's going on in the world about how you look, mm-hmm. right? Uh it is about what we understand race to be as socially constructed, as invented as it is. It still has a power and it's a power of exclusion. Yeah. And that's why we have to deal with it on its own terms as an issue of race and racism and not just about how someone looks. Yeah. And I think that that's very important to think because a lot of people, again, you know, when we're thinking about race, it is about how somebody looks. But I think this particular story um, although I hadn't seen it, but I I could I imagine that okay, I mean because I see people in the street all the time that I'm like oh this person's white, mm-hmm. but they actually might have something else that that causes them not to fully be white. But how these individuals were working with him for so many years, I'm sure they went to each other's homes because I you know how the police forces mm-hmm. are very chummy, and then one ancestry.com revelation changes the entire like mm-hmm. spectrum and it's like the perception of him now i guess it's whatever they perceive people of color t- to be i don't mm-hmm. know criminal thieves whatever negative stuff that comes to mind and it is very powerful and i think that a lot of people do experience that in the workplace mm-hmm. but i think that employers have such subtle ways now mm-hmm. it's like almost in some cases that it's like well let's we can't be overt about it anymore because we're going to get lawsuits and we can't afford <laughs> to be sued. So they find such subtle ways to either reprimand so that I guess at the end of the day, if you were to come and bring a suit, it's like, well, no, there's this pattern of poor work performance or you've been on your cell phone three times. and They try to find merit in the ways to get rid of people. Is there any way to I mean, I know it's, it's, it's I guess it's weird of me to even ask, but is there any way to kind of like be on guard or to kind of protect yourself from these subtle attacks that are now taking place in the workplace? Well, you know, it is true that we do not have the worker protections that would be most desirable. Mm -hmm. Um, And with the decline of the unionized workplace, you know, it's become worse and worse Mm -hmm. um, over time. Um, the one thing that we do have, uh, you know, query, you know, how effective it is, but you're going to work with what you have, right? Um, and what do we have now in this more non-unionized world? We have the rise of social media. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so the extent to which something very foul happens in the workplace, um, even if you don't have worker protections, you know, that some are able to sort of deploy uh, the workings of social media to an extent to try to give transparency mm-hmm. uh, and have a policing of um, employers in that manner. But, you know, obviously there's built in limits to this, you know. How many employers are so public facing that they care? You know, yeah. Um, how many employers um, are such that the uh, social media uh, p- uh, would even care to pick it up? Like, you know, what happens at Apple? I'm sure we're all curious about. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what happens on the bodega on the corner of Flatbush? 
maybe not as much. Yeah. Right? Um, but yet a worker could be just as vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, and being done wrong. Uh, and that's unfortunately, you know, part of the, the problem that we are sort of living in. Um, and I guess I'm, and, in some way, sort of circle back to some, some of the, some of the, the raison d'être uh, <laughs> of the book, is that we already have such fragile civil rights laws. You know, meaning there's so little that we have mm-hmm. for workers, for people wanting to make sure they can have access to uh, fair housing, right? You know, the whole gamut uh, that we do not need anyone saying it should be tinkered with yeah we're hanging on this stuff with a reed <laughs> you know? um, and so we need to fortify it we don't need to have it be diminished in any way whatsoever yeah fragmented and all of that because mm-hmm. i think that's exactly like what i guess the commentators are in a sense doing because mm-hmm. now you're now people are just confused because i'm reading this i'm like are there protections there like how because that that's that's the, what was going through my mind the entire time like what is different about the discrimination like what is it is there something that i'm missing maybe there's something i'm missing but from my understanding of the way discrimination works i was just like what other protections like what it just didn't make sense to me and i think that confusion is definitely not necessary for the reasons that you just gave you know that it's, it is it is a very fragile system and you know i don't know what's gonna happen with these rules and laws as time goes on with this administration so i think it's definitely um it's very interesting i guess um these arguments now i guess what what is your hope for this book? Like, what do you hope, um, I guess that this book, I don't know, does for, I don't know, for, for education, for society? Like, do you have any specific goals? Well, I guess what I wanted to do was first to provide clarity, uh, clarity about the way in which a fluid racial identity can coexist, uh, with an understanding of the importance of political race, right? Mm-hmm. That is to say, um, your understanding of who you are and what's important to your identity um, not only can be very nuanced, it can also change over time. It can change from one location to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all equally valid, right? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that the fluidity of identity takes away from an understanding about how social group status mm-hmm. or a perception of your membership in a social group is any less important. I mean, you can have a growth of a more sophisticated or multifaceted way um, of personally identifying and still be very realistic about the simplistic and crude nature of how discrimination is manifested. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's next after this book? Are we go- are we writing more books? The new book. <laughs> the new book. I'm in the middle of it now. Okay. Any exclusive new- that we want to drop here? I can drop it on here. Um, uh, the new book, uh, sort of, in some respects, you might almost, you know, it, as movies are in a trilogy, there's almost like a trilogy. Right? So book one uh, was Racial Subordination in Latin America. Right? So that was all looking at the... Um, perversity of how raci- racism operates within Latin America mm-hmm. and the anti-black bias uh, sort of that is cultivated in the Caribbean mm-hmm. uh, and in the African, uh, Spanish-speaking African diaspora. 
I am Portuguese speaking. All right. The second book was multiracial and civil rights, mm -hmm. um, looking at how some of these very same tropes of mixed rate, a racial mixture is something distinctive, which you see in Latin America mm -hmm. as a defense to, oh, we don't have racism. We're too racially mixed. Yes. Uh, playing itself out in the United States. The third book sort of melds the books one and two mm. together to look at how Latinos in the United States manifest anti-black bias vis-a-vis Afro-Latinos mm -hmm. and vis-a-vis African-Americans throughout uh, anti-discrimination law. And sort of, and how do we need to come to terms with that, with this growing demographic right? yeah. within the United States? So how law should be responding and not, or not responding. All right. And when can we look forward to this book? That one is about <laughs> another year or two out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. I mean, this one, we, we're celebrating this one right now. I'm, I'm going too fast. <laughs> so where can we find the book? The book is available online at uh, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Also, if anyone wants to um, get a 20% discount, they can purchase it directly from the NYU Press a website and use code PC20. Okay. And then knock 20% right off. We, we all like discounts here. <laughs> <laughs> we love discounts. Now, in terms of social media, if somebody wants to reach out to you, like how would one reach out to you? I would love for them to direct message me on Twitter. I can be found at Professor TKH. <laughs> and follow me. Add to my two followers. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book and just talk about discrimination in general. And I think it was, I mean, I, I enjoyed the conversation and I think that uh, people will definitely find it very interesting and your personality is always so vibrant. Oh, <laughs> it was a pleasure to have this chat with you anytime. Definitely. So thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of Frida's World. Please remember to subscribe, rate and review and we will talk next week. It's Frida's world. What's it like? What's it like? Classy and ratchet at the same time. You clash it. Like you love church music, but you f with future. That's classic. It's Frida's world.